As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, what is my all-time favorite topic? Uh, I know the answer to this. Fraud. Financial fraud. Yeah. Yeah, you're actually right. Um, <laughs> I'm actually right, as financial. if it's such a surprise that I would get <laughs> this question. You you asked it so definitively, and we've been doing this for a while. Well, but I'm, thank you. Thank you for giving me that credit. I only say that because you didn't know my age uh, in that one episode that we did. Uh, so thank you for, um, even if you don't know how old I am, you know what I'm interested in, and that means a lot. So yes, I am definitely interested in financial fraud. And one of the most interesting aspects of financial fraud, in my humble opinion, is usually uh, the accounting, let's say, chicanery that goes along with it. Right. Because... Business happens and people buy stuff and sell stuff. But between the time something happens and the time when it actually gets recorded on paper and recognized as uh, sales and cash coming in and out of the business, uh, a lot can happen. Yeah, that's right. And if you think about it, finance, Wall Street, it's all a numbers game, right? And the way that we think about that those numbers is, uh, well, basically dictated by something that we like to call accounting. And there are various accounting rules uh, that govern how people are supposed to report their earnings and the wider uh, goings on of their businesses. But of course, there's also a lot of leeway in the way that you can come up with those numbers. And even if you're not committing outright fraud, you can definitely utilize a disingenuous accounting practices, practices that can either deliberately mislead your investors or maybe unintentionally, but usually deliberately. You know, it's funny. I'm really excited about this topic as well. I was just reading the uh, autobiography of the Nike CEO, Phil Knight, and he was Mm -hmm. previously an accountant. And he talked about that it was through being an accountant that he really learned what made businesses fail or thrive. And it got me thinking that whereas we often think of something happening in reality and then the accounting being this sort of reflection of reality, that maybe the accounting is the reality and that there's nothing more real in a sense than the process of writing down a number. So I'm very excited uh, (laughs) that we're talking about accounting. And so uh, why don't you uh, tell us what we're going to be talking about today specifically? 
Yeah, wow. Okay, so we're definitely going to go deep in this episode. Uh, Our guest today is actually someone who's come through uh, via listener suggestion. So thank you to uh, Harvard Winters on Twitter for suggesting him. Our guest for today is Howard Schillett. He is the founder and CEO of Schillett Forensics. He's also the author of a book called Financial Shenanigans. We're going to be talking with him about exactly what those accounting shenanigans might be and also about the importance of accounting in general. To your point, Joe. Howard, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Tracy, my pleasure. So uh, I, I guess this is a general starting point. Do you think accounting gets enough credence uh, when it comes to the way we think about business or the wider economy? So let me talk about accounting and the way it, it fits into uh, investors' process of figuring out which companies to own and which companies not to own. Think of think of it more as a behavioral science, and I'll, hmm. I'll sort of diagram the players and what their uh, objectives are and who's winning and who's not winning. So as we know, every public company four times a year has to present themselves to the investment community, to the constituents who have to make decisions. And the mindset of uh, of the public companies, the senior executives, is to tell the story in such a way that the investors are very impressed. So we could say it's not providing the information in a balanced fashion. It's always trying to have a very positive spin. Uh, There are rules. There are generally accepted accounting rules, GAAP, called GAAP. But beyond that, companies have a whole second universe of information they provide, which is non-GAAP metrics. Okay, the other constituent are the consumers, the readers. So those are the people who are part of my universe and trying to help them figure out whether the representations from the company is a consistent, congruent with the underlying reality, as Joe was uh, describing before, or whether it is information that is demonstrably different and misleading. So the so think of the accounting and how that fits in as how management can tell the story. So it's, it's it became a fascinating subject to me. I was an accounting professor, but it became a fascinating subject to me when I began to understand it, not in some uh, mechanical way of just putting numbers on, on paper, but it's how management can choose to tell the story to advance what their interest is. Let's get into different ways of telling the same story, because in theory, it should be simple. If you're a car company, you're like, OK, well, we sold 30,000 cars this quarter and our uh, metals costs were this much and our labor costs were this much. And we take the revenue and subtract the costs and they're dear shareholder, was your profit for the quarter. I know it's not that simple, but where in the process does the discretion of the accountants or management start to enter the picture? Okay. Wonderful question. So the the information gets recorded 
typically when there's a transaction. So let's use an example of somebody who is selling cars. Right? It's your Volkswagen and you are in the fourth quarter of 2017 and you know the Wall Street community has a consensus estimate of what your revenue and what your sales will be. You get a call from a customer, Volkswagen, say a dealer, where they say the uh, uh, cars that you were uh, going to be shipping out to us uh, December 20th, uh, why don't we hold off on that until, because our business is slow and we don't have any place for it. Okay, so here's the pressure that Volkswagen has. The numbers that everybody's expecting include that delivery. Sales get recorded when you ship them out. So the decision Volkswagen has to make at the point is, what do we do? The customer says, don't ship the goods. Do they ship them to another location? So in order to trick the auditors, remember, the the line of defense for the investors is the auditor can say, no, company, you can't do this. So in order to uh, solve the problem that Volkswagen has, they'll miss their numbers if the sales are short. So do they act honestly and announce to their, put out a press release to the investors and basically say, this is what happened. The sales of, say, $50 million that we expected in the fourth quarter, it's not going to come in until the first quarter of next year because of you know, this episode where the customer called out, that's the honest way to do it? Or do they come up with an artificial way of making the numbers? So that's when it gets really interesting. So the the accounting itself is simply solving a business problem. So that was what they would have to do if the sales are a problem. Well, let's take something which actually happened about 10 or so years ago at Volkswagen where they change their depreciable life of their plant and equipment. So as you know, uh, most companies have uh, certain assets that depreciate, and that is reflected as an expense. They Volkswagen was depreciating their plant and equipment over 10 years, a short period. So they seem very conservative. And then you read the footnote in the next period, And you see a slight change in wording where the depreciation, which had been uh, over a 10-year period, the wording was it's now 10 to 15 years. Mm. Very subtle. Well, what's going on there? The company was struggling. See, we figured it out because you don't just whimsically change your your accounting policies if, if you don't need to. And by stretching out their depreciable life by 50%, They obviously lowered their expenses, and they were able to meet the numbers. So so the accounting, I gave one example on the revenue side, one example on the expense side, but each one of these situations is there's a problem. The company has a choice of do we disclose what's really going on to the investors or do we try to cover it up? Right. So, Howard, uh, you just described two examples, and of course, there are various ways uh, to do these cover-ups as you describe them. I'm wondering, given that you've been an accounting professional for a long time, have you noticed that the common uh, sort of accounting fudges or cover-ups have changed over the years? Is there one that used to be quite pervasive or popular and now it's 
maybe something else? Yeah, very, very interesting question. So the book that I described, uh, Financial Shenanigans, the 25th anniversary edition was just published. So I could sort of give you wow. a retrospective. So so the first edition came out uh, in 1993 while I was still a professor. So, so in terms of the tricks, and Tracy, let me get to that. So in the in the earlier years, we'll say up until Sarbanes-Oxley came out a little bit over a decade ago, which placed greater restrictions and the possibility of jail time for the CEO and CFO if they sign off on financial statements that are not in compliance with the rules. Uh, back, I'd say, until roughly a little more than a decade ago, uh, most of the big stories were mucking around with sales and expenses, things that are part of what we call the gap-based numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. After mm-hmm. that, and, th- and this, uh, I, uh, the takeaway should be things are more dangerous today. And the, so, so the accounting trickery has largely migrated from the gap-based results to what's called non-gap. That is things that start with EBITDA. So if there's one takeaway your listeners should uh, embrace, that is if you could ignore EBITDA, because EBITDA is simply a non-GAAP construct, which is easily manipulatable. So I'd say that's, again, things are, are in my judgment, uh, moving in a, uh, in a very bad direction, because the it's so much easier for management to play games and still not be violating the rules or the laws because there are no rules. Howard, I want to press you on this point because it, it has become a really hot topic in recent years. People talk about the gap between basically adjusted earnings, what you're talking about, EBITDA, versus the gap numbers, these sort of official legally required numbers. Um, And we've seen some pretty, let's say, strong examples of adjusted earnings recently. Uh, The one that springs to mind has to be WeWork when they have Mm -hmm. something called community adjusted EBITDA, which seemed to be EBITDA minus the cost of sales, which just (laughs) seemed really, really weird to me. Yeah. So uh, how much of a problem is this? And why did adjusted earnings become so pervasive when it comes to business reporting? So the, the question of why, I think it's the executive community have just gotten more clever and the investor community have not really kept up with sort of what, what they need to do. So just to sort of put this in the context of uh, the, the last 25 years, I told you that's the, the, uh, when the first book came out. So over that period, I've also been working, helping uh, institutional investors. And what, you know, what's become clear is that the, the category of tricks um, identifying keeps growing. Uh, or another way of saying it, management has continued to evolve in terms of their creativity of tricking investors I try to help the good guys and say, these are the, the tricks I've learned. Now start stepping up your game to protect yourself. But the, what's fallen pretty far behind is once management figured out 
that EBITDA and other non-GAAP derivative measures of that, and your example of WeWork is, fits exactly into that category, you start out with the GAAP-based earnings, and you decide as management, uh, we're going to tell investors to ignore this expense and that expense. Yeah, with, with WeWorks, they're basically saying the only expense that investors should pay attention to is the cost of goods sold and all of the selling and marketing and R&D uh, to ignore. It's, it's ridiculous. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I have so many questions listening to this, but one of them is, and I'm kind, I'm not like a hardcore efficient markets hypothesis kind of guy, but I generally think markets are somewhat efficient. <laughs> if they put out the gap numbers, I mean, I know they say, here's the non-gap numbers with our preferred adjustments that they'd like you to, they'd like you to look at. But the gap numbers are all there, so pre-adjustments and just by the book accounting in theory. Since they're right there, why? How could investors really get fooled in mass? Like I could see some people not looking, but for serious investors, isn't the data there for them? Okay, so let me use one company as a case study to sort of help us, you know, get our sure. hands around uh, understanding. So Valiant was the big yeah. story of the last decade. Right. It was a company that went from a $2 billion market value to $90 billion, which was bigger than Enron, back down to $3 billion. It lost 96% of its value over, we'll say, a five-year period from roughly 2012, 13 until 16. their gap-based results cumulatively. Again, this is a company that went up how many yeah. times you would have assumed that their gap-based results would have been pretty amazing. Their cumulative gap-based earnings during that period was around negative $3 billion. Okay, It was there. It was audited. It was, you know, you look at every 10K and you add up the total bottom line and that was it. The alternative universe that the company was putting out was something called cash earnings. You do the exact same drill. You add up for that five-year period, the total each year, it was positive $9 billion. It was so easy to see that if it's essentially measuring the same underlying health of the business, one was gap-based earnings, the other was this surrogate measure they call cash earnings. So how does it make sense if uh, your non-gap metric is shooting to the stars and the audited gap-based measure is plummeting deep into the sea. So, Joe, you know, the, the question is, how did people not see this? It was there, but for some reason, the, the love affair that they had with the company, they kept pointing to a metric that didn't make any sense. With Valiant, there was also a, an exciting story. People thought they had found some new model, right, of buying up drugs, using debt, and slashing the R&D expenses. And people thought this could be 
the new model of how pharma works. So, yes, it's true that the non-GAAP numbers, A, accelerated, and B, there was a huge gap between non-GAAP and GAAP. But people also fell in love with well, well, what well, they let, thought was a let, let me sort of jump in and say that's the problem right. where they fell in love with this story. Right. Right. You, you use the term platform company. Right. People melt. Right. The term platform company is sort of the current iteration of what in the 60s was called a conglomerate. In the 90s was called a roll up. So you're absolutely right for people who who fall in love with stories and don't actually look at the the numbers. That's that's exactly what was happening in that situation. They fell in love with the story, and they they saw the two point nine billion or whatever that losses I was describing. Yeah. But they said, but their cash earnings, and they they built a better mousetrap, right? Instead of uh, being like Merck or the other big pharmaceuticals, where they spend so much on R and D, and most of it doesn't result in successful products, uh, Valiant figured out a better model. And I looked at that and said, you really think the people at Pfizer and Merck are so stupid that they didn't know that there was an alternative, buy versus make? Why did they figure something out which seems so obvious, but it wasn't? Because when you are a drug company, you know the cost of being in that business is you have to spend a lot of money in the drug discovery and... Uh, so if you want to de-risk yourself, which is Valiant's pitch, you buy Bosch and Lam, you buy other companies right. for $40, 50000000000 billion, well, nobody's giving it to you for free. So you are buying right. the – yeah. So the, the notion was, I think, completely misguided. Right. And in the case of Valiant, from what I remember and to Joe's point, the story was almost embedded in the numbers, right? Because a big part of what they were doing were ad backs based on the acquisitions that they were making. So sort of immediately embedding that growth story into that, their numbers. Right. One of the things I want to press you on just on that note is, um, you know, we talked about how Valiant would basically borrow from capital markets at a very cheap rate or a relatively cheap rate predicated on this notion that it was this huge growth company uh, that was going to monetize any second. Is there a sort of feedback loop between capital markets and market valuations that tends to be aided by loose accounting? So uh, if you were trying to put together a portfolio of what would be interesting shorts, you probably would want to get a list of the companies that are the biggest customers of the investment banks. That is the ones that, uh, true, it's, you know, Enron back in 99, 2000 was probably the most profitable client for the investment banks. Because if you think of it, companies that are really generating substantial cash flow, they're funding most of their operations and their expansion through their cash flow, whereas companies that have a dearth of, of cash flow coming from their business, they always have their hand out. They always need more and more. So sort of this, this virtuous loop where the ones that are, are in need of cash, right, the ones who keep coming back to the capital markets, 
are probably not the strongest players. In fact, just the opposite. And when you think about the ones that are pitched the most vociferously by the analyst of the firm, doesn't it make sense that they're going to be pitching the companies for investors to buy of the ones that they have the most merchandise to sell? You know, th- you know think of the uh, the investment bank, no different than merchants. They they the are firms would deny that they're right. They would say, oh, there's definitely a wall between. You know, but but I'm saying just look at the the reality of the business. Whatever the whatever the the constructs are inside is not the point. Sure. It's if your job is to raise a large amount of uh, capital for XYZ company, what does that mean? Not just put together the the you know consortium of who's going to be buying it, but you have to sell a whole bunch of shares, right? right. So your, your client is the corporate, American Express, you pick any company, yeah. and you need to sell that. So the, I'm saying the sort of the analogy to a merchant is you have a whole bunch of inventory that you have to move. And in order to move the inventory, you have to get people excited about it. And you get people excited by saying we've upped our opinion on this company from you know neutral to buy, from buy to strong buy. So that's – so again, I don't care what kind of you know structural walls there are, Chinese, French, Italian walls, whatever you're going to call them, um, the, 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 the companies that – uh, generate the great fees from investment banking uh, are the ones that I would put on the list of be careful. You mentioned Valiant, and that brings me back to another question I had, which is how much have the uh, the fudges or the cover-ups changed since you first wrote the book thanks to the growth of intellectual property-based business models. So, you know, it's one thing if you're selling cars and you record the sale when the car leaves the factory gate versus companies that don't ha- really have much factories. And instead, maybe they have a you know, drug or some sort of really strong brand or they sell ads or something like that. How much has that uh, changed the type of uh, fudges that you've seen? Yes, yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question in that the accounting rules were written many, many years ago before the information-based society. So think of back in the 40s and 50s and the railroads and sort of, okay, so so that's the time the accounting rules were written. Now we're in a world where you have, you know, a group on coming on and, you know, just different type of models where uh, the there are no specific thou shalt nots in the accounting rules for type of transactions that were not envisioned back when the accounting rules were written. So think about the the opportunity set for companies to play games where in the accounting rule book there is no thou shalt not do this, right? So you then, as management, come up with a funky way of recording revenue. You then have it reviewed by your auditor. And the auditor, it's hard for the auditor to push back and say, well, this is a violation of the rule if there's nothing nothing specific in any rule book that addresses that type of transaction. So in terms of what makes the challenges so great is that there's a lot of interpretation of whether it's gap compliant or whether it's non-gap compliant. Right. Uh, Howard, I would love to press you more on the role of the auditors and also um, the accounting standards bodies. But I'm aware that we, if we start going down that road, we'll probably go on for an hour. Um, and there's something 
slightly more immediate that I wanted to ask you, which is lately there's been some discussion prompted by a tweet from Donald Trump uh, where he sort of vaguely mused about maybe changing the quarterly reporting period to maybe a sort of biannual one. So companies reporting earnings every six months instead of every uh, three months as it is currently. As an accountant, how how do you feel about that, and would it ultimately be a good or a bad thing for investors? Okay, so short answer it would be a terrible move, but let me sort of give a little more flavor to that. So, the way companies uh, should be thinking about their business is long term. So, having pressure to every quarter on a very short basis uh, report to the investors puts a lot of pressure on short-term thinking versus long-term. So there's a problem, and I'll sort of tell you what I think the solution is, but it's not what Donald Trump had suggested. So again, so long-term thinking and managing business, good. Short-term gaming toward whatever, bad. Uh, However... It is very important that investors have current information in order to make decisions. So if you stretch out what's now every three months, every six months, the uh, void, the information void is going to be filled by folks who are trying to drive the stock price. So there, there are always unintended consequences. So the, the, the problem is not that uh, companies are reporting four times a year, I think the problem is the circus around the earnings and, you know, sort of the, the, the earnings call and the Wall Street consensus estimate. I think if, if I were going to uh, change the uh, events, I would say absolutely you keep the requirement that companies file with the SEC every three months in accordance with GAAP and not allowed to say anything about non-GAAP metrics. Okay, go back to when the rules were written. The rules were written for a reason that all these numbers, certainly the audit, the, the, the annual numbers are audited, but even the quarterly, uh, those are going to be reviewed by the outside auditor. So again, the, the best solution is continue to have uh, the quarterly filings with the SEC, uh, eliminate non-GAAP in any document and eliminate the the earnings calls. So give people the information, but then don't make a big circus of explaining it and massaging it. I want to sort of make this very useful to our listeners. So earnings season is perpetually right around the corner. So short of reading your book, which I'm actually going to go out and buy your book now because I'm very interested in this and want to learn more. But what is the sort of basic guide you would give to investors to spot red flags? I touched on the point about behavioral analysis. When you're reading any document, you just want to be alert to see if there's anything unusual or different. Give you an example. So a company in a press release. So a press release is different than the 10Q. The the press release around that can begin with whatever title, you know, heading you want to have for that. So if the the standard way the company begins that 
and how they structure that information is the company, uh, the revenue, gap-based revenue is up 10% and the, the profits are up this, which is more standard. If you see a change and they start talking about, oh, the DSOs, the day sales of receivables, improved by 20 days. Your listeners should say, hmm, why is this different? Why are they starting to push a metric that they never talked about before? It's, it's just spotting things that they haven't done before. You need to simply be alert and question something. A company is often trying to cover something up. But when they, the cover-up often is putting a spotlight on something that they want you to look at. And by them putting the spotlight on it, they're actually leading you to where they're playing the game. So, so un, you know, unbeknownst to the company that's playing the game, just by them jump, you know, climbing to the top of the mountain and screaming something they're so proud of, they're actually telling you as the investor, pay close attention. Not necessarily believe what they just said, but why are they screaming about something that they've never mentioned before? And often the irony is they've just led you to where the shenanigan is. Definitely sounds like a magician's tricks of something exciting going on in one hand <laughs> while the uh, more interesting thing yeah. happens in the other. All right. Well, um, that was Howard Schillett, the founder and CEO of Schillett Forensics and uh, also the author of Financial Shenanigans. Thank you so much for being on, Howard. Really a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. And thank you, Joe. Thank you. That was great. So, Joe, based on that conversation, I'm uh, slightly tempted to do an Oddlot spinoff called Audit Trails. I love it. I think I want let's do more accounting. (laughs) Let's do more accounting related episodes, because I really do feel like accounting probably is sort of denigrated in the world of business in terms of Mm. people realizing its significance. But the more I hear about it, read about it and listen to people like Howard, the more I suspect that there's a lot of the real important stuff about business is happening on the accounting side. And that, I don't know, it just feels like there's uh we need to be talking about accounting more, basically. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think we alluded to this in the intro, but if you think about investing in finance as a numbers game, well, then you better be thinking about how those numbers are actually created and presented. Uh, But the other really interesting thing I thought was a point that you brought up, which is about whether or not the current accounting rules are well-adjusted for the way our economy is heading uh, in terms of intellectual property and, you know, so much of the value of the economy now being through intangible items like the importance of the brand and and that just leads down a really interesting sort of wormhole um, into all sorts of things. Yeah. And, you know, we had an episode, I think it was a couple of years ago. Remember, we talked to the mm. those accounting professors about why valuation models weren't working. And they also talked about oh, that. Yeah. So I feel like that also yeah. is a pretty interesting rabbit hole to explore. There's actually a lot more I'm now curious about and thinking about. <laughs> I'm curious about whether... 
machine learning can help identify some of those patterns that get mm. broken all of a sudden, such as the uh, depreciation schedules or uh, other areas like that. So let's uh, let's revisit this topic soon. All right. Accounting series coming up. Uh, that has been another episode of the Audubon podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow Howard on Twitter at Howard Schillett. And you should follow our producer, Topher Forges. He's on Twitter at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. As always, thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.